0: Welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 368 and my conversation with the chair of the percussion area at the University of Oklahoma, percussionist and educator Andrew Richardson. We'll check back in with him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou and homecoming. This past weekend was homecoming at the University of Missouri at the birthplace of homecoming, which you can look up. And it was a very successful weekend for the university, the football team, and Marching Mizzou. Not only did the university host many great events throughout the week and welcomed back a lot of alumni, they were also treated that Saturday with great weather and a sold-out crowd. Add to that many packed, packed tailgating lots. It was a great day all around. The football team beat South Carolina to go 7-1 on the year, the best record they've had in nearly a decade, and it was a special day for Marching Mizzou. We played our Taylor Swift show, which went well, and we're also joined by men's head basketball coach Dennis Gates, who conducted Eye of the Tiger during our pregame show. Not only did he do a great job conducting, which he said he practiced a lot and was very nervous about it. And all that showed, and he was so relieved it was done. But he was super, super gracious with all of the faculty, students, and staff of Marching Mizzou. Such a great event. And the biggest news for Marching Mizzou during the weekend was that one of our piccolo players, Josie Johnson, was voted homecoming queen, which was incredible. The band lost their collective minds, as they should, and that's the second time we've had a Marching Mizzou member win, repeating the triumph of our homecoming king alto sax player Clayton Johnson in 2019. And our homecoming parade show and competition also went well. Good times all around. One bit of podcast housekeeping. This will be the final episode posted prior to the annual PASIC preview episodes, which we'll post a couple of days before PASIC. That's right, folks. PASIC is just around the corner. More about that in the coming weeks. But right now, let's get to our conversation with Andrew Richardson. Andrew and I have known each other for quite a while and likely met at a national conference on percussion pedagogy at some point when he was either a student at James Madison or a doctoral student at the University of Oklahoma. In any case, it was great to get a chance to chat with him more fully here on this interview. Andrew has been teaching at the University of Oklahoma for quite a while. He earned his doctorate there from previous podcast guest Lance Draghi and is now the chair of the percussion area, overseeing all parts of lessons, ensemble, other committees, and the OU Percussion Press, which we discuss here. We also get to hear about his background playing in punk bands in high school, his research into the great music of Raymond Hellbo, and lots more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 6th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right. So, Andrew, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point.
1: Great. Um well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um yeah. you know, long-time listener, first-time caller, <laughs> as they say. Um yeah. but yeah, so here at University of Oklahoma, I coordinate all of percussion activities, essentially, um, teaching lessons to undergraduates and graduate students, conducting a percussion orchestra and team conducting and supervising the percussion ensemble and different years, different responsibilities with the steel band and the Brazilian percussion ensemble, depending on what the graduate student um, situation is. Right now, we have a wonderful graduate student doing the steel band and the Brazilian ensemble, um, which maybe we can talk about later. Uh, other things, uh, the OU Percussion Press is still going, so I'm trying to um, shepherd that as best as I can. Then, of course, administrative aspects of having a relatively large studio with our own area of the building and equipment and all that goes along with that. And then service within the department. Um, currently co-chairing the Concerto Competition Committee, and I sit on Graduate Studies Committee. And then as much on top of that, playing as I can do.
0: Well, let's start with you getting the position. I believe you were a, were you a doctoral student?
1: That is correct. Yeah. Okay. I finished my doctoral coursework at the same time as someone who was doing some adjunct teaching was leaving. And so I was hired right away on a really part-time basis to fill in for that person. Um, and so that was uh, 2013 is when I started as an adjunct faculty. It w- it was Lance before you, right? Correct. Yeah. Lance Draghi. Uh, so he's the person that I studied with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he retired, I was hired to fill in for his position. Yeah.
0: So your responsibilities are to kind of coordinate and chair and and all that stuff. What What does that mean in terms of other Are there other percussion faculty that work with you? I know that you said that you have grad students who do some of that, but does that mean that you have other folks who are also on the faculty level with you?
1: Right. Uh, this year, there's one other percussion faculty. His name's Ben Holmes, and he serves both teaching uh, undergraduate lessons in the studio as well as running the athletic bands. So he does the drum line in the front ensemble and Make sure that the basketball band players are doing what they need to be doing and um, takes care of a whole lot of logistical issues uh, that go along with a large marching band at a big football school. Uh, It's great to have him um, along. And so it's just the two of us in the percussion area as far as faculty go. And then there are uh, three graduate assistants um, in percussion uh, and one graduate assistant in. in the band area to do drumline and things like that.
0: What ends up being kind of the expected or the range of student numbers that you have to deal with? Cause obviously with lots of programs, there's always a, a need for bands and, and like large ensembles to have a certain amount of people. So what's kind of, what do you, what's kind of ends up being kind of the sweet spot in terms of students?
1: Generally over the past, you know, 13 years that I've been here, it's been anywhere from about 20 to 22 up to as much as 26 or so. Um, That's kind of our, as you say, our sweet spot. Um, You know, generally five per class Mm -hmm. uh, include, and then I think of grad students as a unit of three to five. And then we're also um, always excited to have a handful of music minors, which we include, of course. Um, and then there's always a group of people who are not majoring at all and, and maybe taking lessons, maybe playing in percussion ensembles. Um, so when you add that all together, could be more like 27 or, or more.
0: Within your teaching, how much of – or how, what is the – ensemble experience like particularly on the classical side since oklahoma's obviously since gibson has had kind of this reputation for this big time percussion orchestra you mentioned the ou press i'm going to ask you about that as well but Mm -hmm. um what's kind of the how does that work out with what you need to do
1: well everybody plays in percussion ensemble every semester i should say um all majors play Mm in the percussion ensemble every semester. Uh, Minors and non-majors, of course, can choose when they do and they don't um, play in the percussion ensembles. And we're lucky enough to have um, two time periods. So we basically have two percussion ensembles. um, And this has a lot to do with the amount of time that different students can dedicate to that ensemble, um, depending on what year in school you are and that sort of thing. And the upper... Um, ensemble is audition based. um, So Mm -hmm. there's that as well. So we rehearse a couple times a week and we try to play at least two concerts um, each semester, one that's chamber music and solo music, and then one that is sort of everybody, the large ensemble pieces, the chamber pieces, uh, a little bit of the steel band, kind of everything we do, showcase concert once a semester.
0: Are the grad students that you've mentioned is that the kind of the the scope of grad students, or are there others who are there who are who have maybe other teaching opportunities that they're supplementing their income that way?
1: Right. this year we have we do have a graduate student who is also teaching uh, at a school in Shawnee called Oklahoma Baptist University. Mm-hmm. And so he's pursuing the doctorate while also teaching at, at that university. Yeah. And that, um, every few years we'll have someone doing that track, um, you know, not doing the graduate assistant route because they have another gig going on at the same time.
0: Tell me about the size of the pro size of the school, school of music and, um, kind of its size relative to maybe where it fits in the university as a whole.
1: We have about 350 or so music majors. Mm-hmm. That's both undergraduate and graduate. Mm-hmm. And uh, that makes us the, the biggest unit in the College of Fine Arts. That's the college that we're in. You know, I haven't checked the, the most recent numbers for the university, but I think it's something like twenty four to 26,000 for the size of the university.
0: Does it depend on the semester how much impact or I guess who you have as grad students, how much you do the uh, steel band or Brazilian ensemble?
1: Well, both of those ensembles typically run every semester. Uh, as I said, right now, we have a, a great doctoral student. Her name is uh, Michael Braun Dam, and she studied at Iowa and at University of Arizona and so has a great steel pan background. And so uh, this year she's handling both the two. They're Often we have two steel bands, one for beginners and one for people who have played for a little while. So she's handling both those. Um, But the past few years, uh, well, last year we both did one. I did one of the bands and she did the other. And then before that, uh, my first, uh, let's see here, eight or ten years here, I was doing the steel band every year. Um, It was exciting and fun and something that I had passion for. And then as administrative load goes up, and as uh, graduate student interest goes up, it's a great way for them to um, continue to build their skill set and resume and, and connect with undergraduates and, and be good leaders for the studio.
0: How has the administrative load changed for you since you've been teaching there?
1: Well, I mostly mean uh, as I became from sort of a, an adjunct position into then the chair of the area once Lance Retired. It it became a little more challenging to do steel band, Um, and then a couple of years ago we had our first child, and so that became a little bit more challenging still to do these extra things that happen late at night. Um, So it was kind of a a perfect time with uh, her coming as a as a doctoral student.
0: Tell me a little bit about the the facilities. I mean, I've been there. It's it's been a little while. You all used to host uh, the. percussion pedagogy conference right. for a bit there. Uh, but what's been, what? tell me about the facilities as well as, this might seem like a veer, but as well as where mm-hmm. you end up typically recruiting from to mm-hmm. build the program.
1: We have, you know, we're really happy and lucky uh, to have the building we have. Uh, this building houses all the music classes. Uh, most of the music faculty... And We have uh, a large concert hall for uh, wind bands and orchestras and jazz band and uh, percussion ensemble, and we also have a smaller, more intimate recital hall, which is wonderful for senior recitals and faculty recitals and and. The brick wall, groups. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a brick wall. Um, so, keyboard instruments sound really, really good in that. They room. do. And then we also house the fine arts library in this building. Uh, So that makes things easy for students to go check out books for their music history, music theory classes, and also any scores that they might be interested in checking out. They don't even have to go outside in the heat or the rain or whatever might be happening outside. And then there's also a recording studio. And so we have some graduate assistants in the program that record all the concerts and, uh, you know, that makes things nice. When students do their senior recital, within a day or so, they have both video and audio of that ready to go. And the percussion area um, is is nicely nestled between the band and orchestra rooms and the backstage area. So as far as setup, it's kind of a, a wonderful place in the building. We're lucky enough to have uh, two rehearsal spaces in the percussion area as well as a equipment room has six practice rooms and faculty offices. Um, So the students get access to what they need when they need it and and that's really uh, something we're proud of and, and lucky to have. I personally and I think a lot of us in the building take pride in saying University of Oklahoma and so There's a lot of in-state students here, and and we uh, sort of are are proud to to support the state and support public education in the state. Um, The Oklahoma City metro area, which includes, of course, Oklahoma City, Norman, Moore, Edmond, Yukon, and the sort of surrounding cities, they're the the closest um, big population of students. But then we also get a lot of students that come from Tulsa, which isn't that far away. And I also am always happy to reach out to and work with students from, you know, more rural areas in the state as well. Um, Oklahoma is, is big, <laughs> and it's it doesn't take long to get out, um, out of the city into a more rural area. And, um, you know, I always encourage those students to think about us, even though um, maybe it's a little farther away or... For whatever reason, it's not the first on the list. I try to make sure they remember that we're here and, and we serve all students in the state. We also get a, a pretty sizable number for the school uh, from Texas as well, um, Dallas area and Houston area. I think those are kind of our biggest areas of, of recruitment as far as undergraduates go. Graduate students, sort of from all over, whenever I get to meet people and chat to them about the program basically
0: it, it's kind of fun this is an interesting uh day to talk to you on this since uh, Oklahoma oklahoma texas play tomorrow yeah <laughs> I, obviously this will post well after that but it's just kind of funny about it's like oh yeah i was reading that you two you're those two the red river rivalry or whatever they're going to start calling it when they're both in the sec next year you know
1: well still across from the river you know yeah, no, right. so you haven't moved yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an exciting weekend for everybody. I know the students always really, really look forward to that trip. Um, the The band left this morning, and they're doing a um, exhibition performance at a school and, and an outreach um, at a school in the Dallas area. And I know that the, the the students always really look forward to that trip as an opportunity to just sort of get off campus and and represent the the drum line and the marching band and the percussion studio and the school of music and the university kind of all at once. And then the game hopefully will be really, really exciting as much as some OU fans probably want to turn the tide and and blow out Texas this year, the way that they (laughs) did last year. uh, It probably doesn't make for a super exciting game um, when that happens. So I hope the game's just exciting. And of course, you know, Go you, but um, I I think it's always it's always a fun weekend uh, for those students to get to experience that.
0: I know you're not you're not uh, necessarily working with the band, but do they get to travel at all? I mean, aside from this, this is obviously like they always go to this one, which is in Dallas, right?
1: The Cotton Bowl. Yeah, so they do this uh, neutral, quote unquote, neutral location at Cotton Bowl at in, in Dallas at the start of the Texas State Fair.
0: Um, oh, nice. Yeah. yeah
1: so, um, <laughs> but traditionally for the past few years, they've gone of course to that game. And then if the Oklahoma state game is in Stillwater, the band will go to that game. And then often uh, one other, or maybe two other games where the whole band goes, maybe Baylor, maybe TCU, maybe um, Kansas. Kansas, something like that. Yeah. And then, Uh, The other away games, there may be a smaller contingency of you know 100 to 150 pet band that goes. Mm. Uh, So that's kind of what they've been doing. However, you know, you mentioned the the conference change into the SEC, and that of course changes the geography quite dramatically. And so that that may change next year. I mean, obviously the Texas game will always um, be a traveling Game. game. Aside from that time will tell i think
0: yeah i think i think actually we will play you next year oh yeah yeah i saw looked at the schedule i think i think that's happened i don't know when but yeah. and i think it might be here but you know that was that used to be i mean well it was one of those like back in the day that was a big deal for mizzou uh-huh. i don't think it you all cared <laughs> like because you were probably you kicked the butt kicked the butt you know pretty regularly yeah.
1: there are a couple like you know, Missouri, we used to be in the same conference and now we will be yeah. again. So that'll be, um, not as new of an experience. It'll just be a return to doing what we right. used to do. Kind of like a couple of years ago, they did two games with Nebraska. You know, that used to be right. a really big game and so yeah, it was fun to be able to do that again. Yeah,
0: sure. All right. Well, let's talk about OU Press. So, um... Go ahead and just just give a little bit about the history before you kind of talk about what's Mm -hmm. what the how that still continues to be an important part of the percussion ensemble curriculum.
1: Well, you mentioned, um, Dr. Richard Gibson, he you know, he's the one that started this, um, in '78, I believe. And uh, there's a, a grant from the university to kind of get this thing rolling, essentially, uh, used it as a way to get percussion ensemble music to the public. Um, There was a a sort of one of the ways to think about it was when quote unquote percussion orchestra or larger percussion ensemble music um, perhaps was not jumped on by publishers who were thinking about, you know, how marketable it might've been at a time when there were pieces that needed a equipment that not everybody had and number of players that not everybody had. And, and when publishing cost, um, you know, when the publishing costs were different, that may have been a risk, uh, that fewer people were willing to take on. And so this was a way to, um, promote this genre and this ensemble. Um, and so over the years there've been quite a few commissions of r- r- important works, um, Crown of Thorns, and Diabolic Variations, and uh, Palestinian Perfections. And that's kind of the, the short history um, of the percussion press. And it's still in existence and still kind of focuses on that mission of, of using it as an outlet for commissioning new works um, rather than uh, trying to be a big, big publishing firm or anything like that. Uh, recently in 2019 we held a composition contest and so the two of those winners uh, were some of the pieces that were published recently and then last year we published or or commissioned and premiered uh, work from Jessica Jessica Flanagan's pre-field which was great and then over the summer were able to put that video out, kind of produced video out. Um, so that's been the more recent projects.
0: The other thing that's if I'm not mistaken, is just that you you mentioned about kind of the the publishers were shying away from it. Well, but I mean the genre didn't really exist yet. I mean the, this is like I mean the press kind of and, and Richard helped to kind of create this new style of percussion writing in, in so many ways, right?
1: Yeah, sure. That is certainly part of it as well, that this quote-unquote percussion orchestra idea was in its infancy. Um, he was doing that. Um, others, you know, Killingham was writing for other schools as well, and um, Honer was doing big percussion ensemble music. But yeah, a, a number of those earlier pieces that I mentioned sort of helped define the genre for sure.
0: Yeah. It Does it operate out of OU is it because wasn't there? Was it connected with C. Allen as well?
1: Or no? So C. Allen does distribution. Okay. Yeah.
0: I got you. But all of the, you're, you're, you oversee all of the, the kind of the commissioning, the, the public, like all the kind of the general.
1: Yeah. The nuts and bolts yeah. are done here uh, between myself and graduate student. And then uh, C. Allen, uh, is our main distribution.
0: All right. Well, uh, well, Andrew, let's, let's back up. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Virginia. What part? Um, The earliest, I was born in Alexandria, which is a Mm -hmm. DC suburb and lived there until um, second grade. No, fourth grade. Okay. (laughs) Moved uh, with my, Um, mom and stepdad to a small-ish town, although bigger now, called Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is where um, James Madison University is. Mm -hmm. And went to uh, finished elementary school and middle school and high school in Harrisonburg. um, And still sort of claimed the DC suburbs as home as well, because that's where my um, dad and stepmother lived. Uh, Went to high school in a little town called Bridgewater, Virginia, which is just outside of Harrisonburg, um, at school called Turner Ashby high school. And then, um, ended up going to James Madison right there in town. Uh, one kind of funny thing about that though, is I went to college and my mom and stepdad moved out of town. So I was sort of able to stay in my hometown, but also, um, move away in a way at the same time. Cause my yeah. parents, um, moved away. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> that's funny. That's a, that's a, that is unusual. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did you have any family members in the arts?
1: Um, yeah, I had a, a great grandfather who, um, played clarinet and, um, some other instruments. Um, my, my mom played clarinet when she was in school and sang in choirs and things. My dad, he may not have called himself <laughs> a musician, but I think he was. He tinkered on a number of instruments. played a in handbill choir, played a little bit of guitar, had a uh, pump organ in his house that he would play on. No professionals that I can recall, uh, but a number of people who were um, musicians for sure. My older brother uh, played... Trumpet for a little while and then really, really stuck to um, playing the guitar. And so hmm. um, he was the first kid in the house playing music. I think that, I think I'm, I do not think I'm forgetting anyone. Oh, my stepfather played uh, and still does play if you, if you um, nudge him enough, um, played piano and um, sang and uh, played jazz saxophone in high school. Uh, so he was also a, um, um, Encouraging me, my stepmother played piano, uh, and we had a a Steinway grand in her house. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was it was always there. Um, If not, it was always it was always around. Someone was sort of always tinkering, for sure.
0: Yeah. So when did the percussion bug hit you?
1: I had a friend who got a drum set for his birthday in, I don't know, I think sixth grade maybe, uh, if I remember correctly, fifth or sixth grade, and he was my best friend in school, and so just being at his house playing the drum set was kind of the start for me, and he also had already joined the band, and so when I started playing drums at his house, he kind of said, oh, you should also play in the band with me in middle school, Uh, So that was kind of the start for me. And in middle school, it was concert band and it was, we had a stage band as well Mm. that would do um, kind of a, you know, a a beginning early kind of jazz band, but also would do, you know, pop music and basketball band music, stuff like that.
0: Have enjoyed over the years watching, um, like, if you ever get to watch like a a sixth or seventh grade jazz band or pet band, and they'll, um, you'll see like the, the trumpets counting out loud the rest. Cause you're just like, you know, you're like, yeah, I know. I know I've been there and they're like one and two and three and two. And two. it's good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember too much about the music that we played. I don't even remember playing any real jazz charts. I remember playing, um, night, night ride, night, ride? night train, night train. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. And then a lot of what we would do would be more focused on, um, kind of that stage band thing of, um, Kokomo and La Bamba and, um, Final Countdown. (laughs) um, Hey Jude. (laughs) Yeah. Stuff like that. Oh yeah. parents love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was good fun. And it was fun to play for pep rallies and, I, I think maybe some maybe basketball games, mm-hmm. um, but that was fun. And then concert band was just exactly what you'd expect from a relatively rural middle school concert mm-hmm. band.
0: Yeah. Was there a big marching component to your middle school, high school?
1: Um, not in middle school. Mm-hmm. Uh, while there was, I believe, a middle school team, football team, there wasn't middle school marching Band. Uh the first experience that we uh, got was the summer between. Oh, I take that back. Uh, you were there was an invitation for eighth graders to come to one football game. But then the summer between eighth and ninth grade, you would go if you if you signed up for band. That's mm-hmm. when you would. Um, the f- very first thing you did was a parade in the summer, in second or third week of July. Mm-hmm. Um, the local fire department hosts what they call a lawn party Hmm. and it's two or three days of kind of like a fair ride, ticket, ticketed rides and, Mm -hmm. you know, coin tosses to win stuffed animals. And, um, being that it was relatively rural, there'd be tractor pulls and and tractor shows. And there were each night, there was a parade. One of the nights would be antique cars and, (laughs) and, uh, emergency vehicles, yeah. and then another night would be the tractor parade of antique tractors, and one of those two nights, the uh, our marching band would march through Bridgewater and play the fight song, essentially. Yeah, um, and so that was my very first marching band experience, and I was a little bit hesitant, as I recall, um, because it was something that I just you know didn't really know about. Oh, should I do this and kind of got talked into it, um, by friends and the teacher and, um, loved it. Uh, So then marching band was, was a big part of my high school in the sense that I really enjoyed it and, and worked hard at it and yeah, took it seriously, but it it was not the kind of thing where, you know, every weekend we're doing competitions and it was, it was not that kind of a band we would go to when I was in high school, we would typically go to one, maybe two contests yep. uh, and just do home football games and maybe an away game if there was an away game was close by. So it wasn't not like what some high schools here in Oklahoma do as far as um, tons and tons of competitions and that kind of thing. But I certainly took to it and, and really enjoyed it. Aside from doing
0: all of the, the music items, were you involved in anything else? Were you doing any sports or student government or Church-related or anything else that was filling out your time? Leeds, you know?
1: Nothing that ended up, like, sticking around for very long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, I skateboarded for a while. Mm. I was into sports, but not into necessarily um, playing on the school teams. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a basketball hoop in our driveway um, and did rec league a couple of times. So kind of went through a number of different sort of uh, sport interests, but nothing that, that lasted for as long or as, as, as seriously as music. Um, I was always pretty good in school as far as like academics, um, but if I'm honest, didn't like really, really try and really apply myself uh, sure. because it, it, you know, was relatively um, just sort of came... Naturally, to me, the academic side of things. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the only the only club that I can remember doing was actually the French club. Mm. Yeah my my mom spoke, or probably still does speak French. Uh, she's um, originally was born in Ireland, but lived in England and was a French exchange student several years. Oh, okay, uh, with the same family. Oh, interesting. Okay, and so. Um, when it came time for my brother and I to pick a language to do in school, we were encouraged French cause she could speak it and could help out. Um, and yeah, I ended up doing the French club. I didn't, again, I didn't really stick with it once I finished the requirements for it. Like, okay, fine. Go on and do something else. Um, but I think that was, I don't remember really being in any of the clubs other than that.
0: Have you been to France? No, I have not been uh, to France. It's very nice. You should, you should go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i've heard it i've heard it's nice
0: yeah i'm sure with a young child it's it would be perfect i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah right eight hour or nine hour flight would be great yeah it, yeah
0: <laughs> the children love that as someone who doesn't have any kids i'm sure it's fine i'm sure it's fine <laughs> is it just because you're in town or really close that you already know about jmu had you had any contact with the school like did you go to
1: like mount fest or something like that or things like that it was a little of both. We actually were ve- lived very, very close to campus. And so we'd mm. drive past um, all the time. And um, friends, uh, you know, my parents' friends or friends from their churches would um, be professors there. And so I'd meet people that way. And, yeah. you know, you live in a college town and friends at school, their teachers or their um, parents were professors. Yeah. Uh, my. Uh, oh, we also ended up having season tickets to the football games, and mm. so would see the marching band every every home game for um, most of my high school. So that was, of course, a huge influence, because um, the, the marching band is big and yeah. really good and um, really inspirational. Um, they do uh, host summer band camps, and so I went to those twice, uh, used to be... Uh, Yamaha sound, a summer camp. I don't know if that, what that situation is right now, but, um, essentially drumline camps. Um, when I was in high school, uh, section leaders would be, would be, um, the, the high school would sort of give scholarships to section leaders to go to a summer camp. Yeah, uh, and so we'd all go to the JMU summer camp. So that's kind of how I got really connected with the school. Um, and then in my senior year, started taking, once I decided I was really serious about this and interested in majoring, started taking lessons from a graduate student there named Dave Helms. Oh, I think you know David Helms from maybe meeting at NCPP conferences. Um, he's not in the field um, any longer, but he was a graduate- That name sounds student. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. He was a graduate student at JMU um, mm-hmm. when, when I was a senior in high school, and so- took lessons with him and, and was able to then, you know, go in music building and see concerts and things. And that really clinched it for me.
0: Yeah. How does lessons work? Cause it is a big program with, and it was Bill Rice that was there, right? When you were there. That's right. Yeah. So how did, how did he run the program? What was your interaction with the other faculty that were there and all that stuff?
1: Mm-hmm. My first year he was teaching all the, applied lessons, um, with the exception of if students were playing drums in the jazz bands, they also got an extra lesson on drum set from a faculty member named Marlon Foster. Mm -hmm. Rick Deloney, who's still there, uh, was doing the drum line. Mm. And so that's, that was the faculty situation when I was there. So, um, we all studied with Bill, Bill Rice, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned Dave, but there were graduate students, one or two graduate students each year that I was there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my senior year, another faculty member joined uh, named Michael Overman. Yeah. And then uh, the lessons started to sort of get split up. Um, mm-hmm. You'd either, as I recall, maybe you'd take um, from one faculty member for a semester or two and then take a semester or two with the other faculty member just to kind of get both or right. some students would do half an hour with one and half an hour with the other at the same time like during the same semester yeah uh, just sort of depended on uh, different student situation and where they were in the degree and recital uh, things like that so then for uh the end of my undergraduate and i'd stayed on there for masters um had both bill and michael overman And I I did end up taking um, a semester or so with Marlon Foster as well, uh, studying just drum set.
0: When you were taking from Bill, was the focus on on total percussion? Was it more on excerpts or orchestral style? And where you get because I know that Overman is a big was a big marimba person. So were they splitting it up that way, or was they everyone kind of teaching everything?
1: Generally, everybody was teaching everything. Uh, In different situations, maybe they would lean into a student's strengths by pairing them up with the faculty who had a similar strength for that. Um, Of course, my first three years, it was just Bill, and it was total percussion. Yeah. Um, He did everything, except as I previously mentioned, the jazz drum set um, faculty member. And then when Michael came, yeah, I remember playing all instruments for both of them, um, just different semesters focusing, maybe a given semester, I would do keyboard works with Michael and percussion works with Bill. And then maybe the next semester we'd switch or something like that. Um, but you're right. Michael is, was uh, a fantastic marimba player. And so once he uh, was there, I'd say most then of the keyboard playing that I did at least was really focused with him and the percussion with Bill. And studying timpani with Bill was um, really nice too. He had a part of his career was as a professional timpanist, um, so it was nice to get that experience from him. He
0: was really strong on snare drum, if I know.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was a yeah. uh, um, you know championship snare drummer in the '60s and '70s, um, and and that was a really fun too. I used to really. Uh, Liked hearing. I've always been really interested in in the historical aspect of what we do, and so hearing him talk about you know that time period of of drum corps and of percussion in general, and um, and he studied um, also with Honer, and so yeah. kind of getting the inside perspective there of that program. Uh, all those things really um, added to my interest in percussion. To sort of think more academically and more, um, more seriously, and really think about um, different ways to pursue it as a career.
0: Were you doing a performance or music ed?
1: Performance. Both of a, a undergrad and masters were performance. Yeah.
0: Okay. Were you required to do marching band for that, or did you uh, do perf- it just because? Or.
1: I was going to do it no matter what. Um, as I recall, Music Ed had to do it two semesters. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's how it was. Performance, I don't believe, had any requirements, but many of us did um, just because we enjoyed it. I ended up not doing it my senior year because I had hurt myself over the summer and had oh. to sort of reduce my playing <laughs> um, for that fall semester of my senior year. And so... Couldn't end up marching or, you know, chose, sadly chose not to do that, just thinking of, of time and, and intensity of playing, just trying to reduce things a little bit so that I didn't get too far behind or, or injure my arm even more. What happened? Uh, it was just a simple overuse. Um, my It's kind of... Uh, Started, uh, you know, a little bit embarrassing. My high school rock and roll band was doing a reunion show. Oh. And we just got together and played. And, of course, it was at, like, 11 or midnight. And at that point, I had not been doing that type of playing and being awake at that hour for <laughs> a few years, believe it or not. I was not a late-night a late person in college. And mm. anyway, so doing this really long – um really rambunctious rock and roll gig at midnight with a bunch of friends. Um, But then, so I think that maybe started it, but then uh, the next couple of days I had a a project uh, that was essentially typing for 48 hours. (laughs) And I think those two together sparked a little, just kind of tweaked my um, wrist and elbow, um, uh, you know, one doctor sort of said tendonitis, but of course tendonitis doesn't really mean very much. It just means inflamed tendon. Um, yeah. it's one of those diagnoses that doesn't mean a whole lot. Anyway, for me, it just meant I had to be careful for, um, a few years. Um, and it, then it just became normal for me to be really aware of warming up and what I eat and what I, um, you know, hydrating enough and sleeping enough and, taking care of myself in terms of lifting and, and using the computer and all that sort of thing. So it wasn't, um, any sort of tragedy. It just meant that for that fall semester, I really had to take it easy. And so I didn't do marching band. Um, but it was, you know, some of my, like, I think a lot of people who do marching band, it was, it was some of my strongest memories of undergraduate were the marching band and, um, the people and still staying in touch with those people. And I mean, a lot of them were also the percussion studio members. So that helped. But so to answer your question as a performance major, I didn't have to do marching band, but chose to, um, and had decided in 10th grade that I wanted to be in that band, you know? Yeah. That's great.
0: What kind of music did your rock band play?
1: Uh, we were a punk band. We started as a Ramones cover band before. Oh, we, nice! Yeah, before we wrote any of our own music, and then the guitar player did uh, you know, most of the heavy lifting as far as writing music goes. Yeah. And, um And were
0: they were they doing the heavy lifting of playing just da 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 just a real fast?
1: That's definitely uh, how it started. <laughs> yeah, um, that's definitely how it started. Just really, you know, three chords on a guitar and
0: yeah. It Gigs was, taking thirty-five songs in eighteen minutes, kind of thing. Or yep,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, as as especially as the guitar player got better and better, um, you know, his his songwriting got better, and the style of uh, changed a little bit. It still kind of stayed in that punk hardcore sort of vein, but that was mostly you know. Once we we went to different colleges, and that was kind of the end of it. But for a couple of years. It was really fun and um, played a lot of shows, mostly um, house parties and um, garages and just like packing a hundred people in someone's basement, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but Great sure for the fun. years, I hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because at some point in high school, I um, I, I don't know what it was, but we, we actually did realize, like, hey, we should probably put earplugs in. And so believe it or not, and even as high schooler using earplugs. Now, when I went into marching band rehearsal or something, I foolishly did not. Until right. I really learned more about it, that that was a fun band uh, for sure. I don't
0: know if you've ever heard this, but when um, there's a really good documentary on the Go Go's, okay, um, that no. came out a half years ago, and one of the things they said that was kind of kind of unlocked them a little bit for me. I mean, I was always a fan, but. Is they because they started out as a punk band, and one of them said, "Yeah, we just kind of slowed the tempo down like twenty beats, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and if you hear, think of something like we got the beat, and it's like, <laughs> like if it like that's where it begins, but mm-hmm. then the actual song is like, <inaudible> like it's almost a groove, and it's like it's just twenty beats slower, and and they're like, now that's pop music,
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right." <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, if you listen to it, you're right. I mean, like Blink-182, I mean, kind of like. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I mean, even The Clash. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. You listen to those albums. You just pull one song from each album, and you don't know <laughs> that necessarily they're the same people, so. Yeah, oh, my gosh. I mean, the first
0: the first few years, you're like, I, I mean, I I can barely listen to the early stuff uh London calling and after where I'm like now this is a great band <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs>
0: you know when you get to like Guns of Brixton and Clampdown and uh all the ones from like that you know Rock the Cat like when it, when you're like oh they actually like they figured it out they have yeah. they've there's like real music
1: here <laughs> yeah for sure yeah and it's an attitude too you know yeah um, just like any Genre title punk doesn't necessarily mean that much as far as what it's going to sound like. You know, you right. listen to two quote unquote punk bands and maybe they're totally different, but um, yeah, attitude is a whole other story,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, even if you like Ramones, you listen to like how polished I want to get be sedated is versus like chainsaw or something yeah. like that, where you're just like, who. who what it's like someone like cleaned this band up, or something. yeah.
1: And I sort of remember. I mean, uh, maybe someone will fact check me on this, but I sort of feel like Joey wanted to be a pop star more than yeah. you know. So, uh, yeah, it's, they're really playing pop music. They're just doing it in a a, a really um, kind of bare bones way and fast. As so,
0: yeah, and purposefully not not like learning anymore, basically. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. Uh there, there there's i I don't know if you've seen there's a great documentary about them from a long time ago where they were just they were like what was wrong with music in the 70s it was like where do I begin and they <laughs> they're just showing like clips of Emerson Lake all this uh Emerson Lake and Palmer this and they're just like what?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> it was there any picture, particular reason you decided to stick around for a second degree there?
1: You know, the fact that, uh, Michael Overman came during my senior year sort of meant that even though I was staying in the same place, I got a new experience, uh, as far as applied percussion mm. goes, you know, I, I, got to study with, a, a new teacher. Uh, so that was, um, inviting, uh, there was a assistantship opportunity, which is of course always great. So I think those two, once I, uh, those two things were the, I think the bigger factors, mm. um, And, you know, it sounds kind of cheesy to say I loved the town, but I did. And um, my girlfriend, now wife, was there. And so you put all that together, and it's like an easy, kind of an easy thing to do. And, you know, I sometimes say to my students now, maybe you shouldn't always take the easy road. It just worked out well for all those sorts of reasons. Um, But one of the big things was, uh, oh, and not only was Michael Overman a new faculty um, who helped – or, you know, so I could stay, but also get a new experience. Uh, there was a new band director coming at the time as well. So the, the Wind Symphony experience um, changed as well. So the school was sort of changing in hmm. some ways that, that meant it wasn't, strictly speaking, just a continuation of four years that I'd already been doing.
0: Was it weird at all being a grad student versus being undergrad?
1: At first, yes, uh, that's something else that I've you know talked to my own students about who have um, considered doing the same thing here where um, and and really any incoming masters student, if you go right from undergraduate to masters and you have an assistantship, you are really close in age to some of those students or potentially even younger than yeah um, that's true some of those other students. Uh, so yeah, there was a little bit of a transition time. Uh, For me to get comfortable um, leading and for the rest of the studio, um, one thing that helped was I was teaching the percussion methods course right away. Um, Mm. So, you know, I had to step into a a real um, authoritative role, but certainly leadership role and um, um, a new responsibility right away. Um, But yeah, that was... a, a. you know, there was a, some time to, from time to time, it was a little bit transition to get used to. Well,
0: it makes sense when you kind of explain about how you get like having kind of a new teacher to really interact with. You know, you get, you get, for it sounds like you got the one year and you're like, but this is not really enough.
1: A little bit, yeah. And I still continued to study with Bill as well. It wasn't that I was looking for necessarily a change. It was just sort of an added bonus that, um, you know, these opportunities presented themselves. I was also teaching at um, some local high schools, kind of doing drumline in the summer and some lessons. I had a, a little kind of private studio. And so I could continue all those sorts of things, but at the same time not strictly feel like I was just continuing two more years of what I was already doing
0: what was the transition like for you to be teaching the methods course?
1: I'm the kind of person that, um, in that sort of situation really, I don't want to say over prepares, but you know, mm-hmm. over the summer, I read the, the Rob, uh, uh Gary Cook teaching mm-hmm. percussion from cover to cover two or three times. Wow. And, and that's a, that's a lot of, like, of words. <laughs> yeah. Just sort of like really, really took it to heart and said, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I want to do a good job, but also um, not look embarrassed. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good motivator. Yeah, it really is. Um, And I knew that, well, you know, the methods course are typically uh, maybe sophomores taking the methods courses, but there's always, I shouldn't say always, but sometimes there are those students who for whatever reason don't follow the degree plan. And so, you know, there's a senior in the class. Right. Um, who in that case was just, you know, one grade level below me. We could have even been the same age. You know, I was just the year before in some same classes with this particular person. And, um, yeah, you know, as a master's student, you're also in the wind band with these people. And so it's always kind of right. a fine line that you're treading of, of being, um, instructor, sort of leader, authority figure, but at the same time in an ensemble with them. Um, so for me, the summer was just really, um, just deciding to kind of know, have, know my material inside and out and be sort of extra prepared. And I had some, um, good, um, mentorship from both Michael and Bill about, um, how to go about doing it. Were were you
0: involved in ensembles in a different way like either, was there like a grad group ensemble? Was there, were there other responsibilities with that? Or was it, were you just kind of, was your teaching just limited to the class?
1: Yeah, the teaching that I did was limited to the class. Although sometimes it would fall on me to run sectionals maybe in, for wind symphony or sure. percussion ensemble. Um, I did coach a percussion ensemble at some point each year. When we did have another graduate student, we uh, would play together, but there weren't a you know, there weren't four or five graduate students in percussion to put together a graduate ensemble. Um, yeah. so I was just, you know, playing with the undergrads in, in percussion ensemble, but would do things like run sectionals as needed.
0: What was some of the lit that you played, um, you know, either in ensemble or some of the lit you studied at this time?
1: Bill was also into the percussion orchestra concept. And so our, our, Concerts would always have one or two of that style of piece, and then three or four chamber pieces, and then maybe a pop arrangement or classical arrangement. That was sort of a typical concert. So, I, I, the, first, the first piece that really, really struck me, um, that I remember, of course, was sophomore year doing Diabolic Variations. Oh, yeah. Um, and a that ended up actually really changing. My life in quite dramatic ways, um, you know, seeing that OU percussion press on there. Um, and then it, it was just like incepted in my brain um, from, from that point, both uh, the, the piece, um, Helbel ended up playing a big role in my career, and then um, ending up here at OU. So, anyway, that was kind of the first quote unquote biggie that we did when I was there. And we did Palace once. And um, Gillingham music while I was there is when Nathan Daughtry did Limerick Daydreams. And so mm-hmm. we were um, playing that when it was new. I think we maybe did the first recording of that piece. Um, and then some um, David Long music, Spirits mm-hmm. and Crystals. Yeah. Uh, And then, as far as chamber music goes, kind of what was popular at the time, I remember doing things like Nordic Peace and Sharpen Stick, at some point, doing the Levitan Rimba Quartet. What's a Rudiger? um, Oh, Sculpture in Wood. Mm. Yeah. So, a a variety of drums and keyboard chamber works, and then these larger percussion, uh, percussion ensemble, percussion orchestra pieces as well. And what about the for solo lit? Yeah, it's funny you mention that. You know, when I started as a freshman, I was hands down, you know, the bottom of the freshman class. No mm-hmm. question about it. I, I knew when I arrived, uh, I had to practice keyboard more than anybody. Um, and I did. And by the time um, my sophomore year came around, I was, felt like I could hang with everybody. And then I started noticing, uh, uh, me and a group of uh, two other um, students decided we were going to play Stubernick and we were talking about parts and they said, okay, well, you'll play the middle part. And I sort of said, okay. And then I thought, wait a minute, how did I turn into the keyboard guy when just three semesters ago I was, you know, just a drummer. So anyway, a lot of keyboard rep at the beginning because I had to sort of catch up all the Goldenberg and reading, 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 reading. It was, it was Bill Rice who just sort of pounded me to, Learn the keyboards. As far as recitals go, my um, junior recital just had to, only had to be a half recital. So I played the five Burrett Preludes, uh, which were relatively new at the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, a Leander Kaiser snare drum piece called Der Provocateur. Mm-hmm. And um, an old multi-percussion solo with piano accompaniment called The Worried Drummer.
0: Oh, um, I don't even know this.
1: Yeah, by um, Schreiner, I believe was his last name. I think. Okay. It was fun and kind of cute. The piano part was almost like dancey, um, mm. almost kind of pokey at times. And, you know, you were kind of boom chick, boom chick, boom chick on a bass drum and snare drum. And then you had to run over here and play a keyboard lick. And then you had to run over here and do a slide whistle or something. Um, it was almost novelty in a way, okay. um, but really fun piece. And then, senior recital. Things like the um, marimbas, um, beads of glass. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I got into heavily into Stan Leonard timpani music. So Canticle, oh. yeah, um, and collage, and Askel Mäson's music, mm-hmm. and Dave Friedman vibe pieces. That's sure, amazing.
0: yeah. So how do you get connected to OU then after?
1: As I mentioned, after playing things like Diabolic Variations and Palace, um, I sort of knew about it, but not a huge amount. Um, And then going to NCPP conferences, um, meeting Lance Draghi and um, Cora McLaren, and um, Dave Helms actually ended up um, coming here for his uh, DMA work. And... So it had sort of always been in my realm. And then when I was, uh, I took two years between master's and DMA and I was teaching privately and teaching at a, uh, a local high school. And when I started really getting serious about the DMA idea, I went in and talked to Bill and, you know, what are some of your ideas? And it was just one of the ones on his uh, suggestions. So it wasn't any one particular thing that really turned me onto it. It just ended up on the list from a number of different people and when I came out and visited, it just felt good and connected with Lance Dreggie and connected with the town, even though it's much bigger than Harrisonburg, it is, um, it spreads out and not up because yeah. we got yeah. nothing but land out here. Right. And so it feels like a college town, even though it's um, much bigger than the small town that I lived in.
0: It's a cool place. I, I've enjoyed getting to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah, it's very, it's like the school is, center you know like the the football stadiums inside the campus like it's all right there and then you, there's like all these cool restaurants that are you know kind of surround it and mm-hmm. yeah well at least that's what it's like in in mid-may when i've been there so i don't, I don't know about the rest <laughs> yeah. of the year i can't i can't yeah
1: skip. yeah mid-may is a good time to come as long as the weather is uh not too dangerous
0: yeah right. well yes that's the other problem <laughs> yeah so yeah, that's yeah, been that's uh, a couple times. A couple other guests have brought up the the, the more mm-hmm. tornado from because it happened during NCPP.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no, that wasn't the well, that was sort of the second big, big one that people talk about.
0: Right, because there was, was one bigger
1: one, um, uh, probably ten or twelve years before that one. Yeah, um, ninety nine or something, ninety eight. I should probably know that, but yeah. Um, um yeah so that you know that that is a concern but it's everywhere has their thing whether it's right. earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes or right yeah
0: the break you took between your masters and doctorate did you think i'm definitely going to get my doctorate it was like well maybe i'll just see where where we what i end up doing
1: yeah no i did not think i'm definitely going to go back sometime uh, i finished my masters and i got um hooked up with a uh, Harrisonburg High School and had a really meaningful uh, relationship with the, the head band director there, and he was a great mentor, and I enjoyed working there. Had a little private studio um, that I would travel to people's houses or schools, that kind of thing, and it was great. And then I just, at some point, you know, was thinking long-term and thinking, um, I'm, I'm enjoying this, um, but I sort of felt you know, from my time as a master's student that I, I thought, you know, I, I think I enjoy working with college students as sort of my, I think that's the age group that I work best with. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I started thinking like, well, maybe I should, um, look at college teaching, which meant maybe I should think about the DMA. And it just sort of went from there. There was no moment where I said, okay, I'm definitely going to do this or, um, Uh, I never really felt unhappy with what I was doing. I just decided it was time to explore other options.
0: Were you getting to play during those two years or no?
1: As much as I wanted to, for sure. um, I was uh, actually renting an instrument, um, um, a marimba, and I was able to have a marimba in my house so I could still play that. And um, when the neighbors weren't home, I could still play a drum set. And um, I was playing in... Uh, the Massanutten Brass Band, which is a community um, British-style brass band, not mm. New orleans style brass band. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that was fun, and it was really stacked. It was a bunch of college professors uh, as well as a bunch of people who had been playing for years and years and years, and and high school and middle school band teachers. And so even though um, you know it wasn't a professional group, it was really quite stacked. And we could do two or three rehearsals and play a concert, which is one of my favorite ways to do things because it keeps things really exciting. And the band would go and do competitions and we went to the North American Brass Band Association contest. And one year we were top of our class. And so, yeah, I got to play as much as I wanted to and then doing different gigs and solo. And it was really just what I I had the time to do it if I wanted to, for sure.
0: When you move to Oklahoma, what's the welcome to Oklahoma moment? (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, well, this is kind of a funny story. The very first time before I moved, when I came to audition, I um, was driving over to campus from the hotel, and I drove past a Whataburger fast food restaurant. And mm-hmm. I, because they're regional, I didn't, I didn't know they were real. I knew them in King of the Hill. They went to... <laughs> Um, they went to Whataburger. And so I sort of thought it was like Krusty Burger a little bit, like just oh. that's the name of the burger shop in King of the Hill. And yeah, yeah. I drove past one and it was like a double take. Um, oh, that's a, that's a real restaurant. Um, <laughs> but that was before I moved here. Uh, yeah. When we moved here, the first couple of weeks were actually kind of, it was great as far as starting school and meeting people in the studio and OU. Um, but it was one of those summers where I think there was something like 30 or 35 days in a row over a hundred degrees and wow. our air conditioner broke. And then when our washer and dryer were being delivered, they accidentally dropped the dolly onto the dryer. And so they had to then replace the dryer. And oh my, uh, my car, when it was parked on the side of the street got hit and, um, Really, it, it was not huge damage. It was fine. But like kind of a bunch of these little things that in looking back, my wife and I often talk, I wish we had kept a journal or something just <laughs> of what that first few weeks was like. Because it was sort of one little, you know, in in retrospect, inconvenience after sure. another, not, not any big deal, but it was a funny couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but starting school was great. Um Yeah, just accepted right away and um made friends right away and there's another DMA student starting uh the same semester as I did and so we connected right away.
0: What were assistantship responsibilities at that point?
1: Yeah I was doing the methods course, the um steel band and uh teaching a couple of lessons and at some point I was the equipment manager at some point, I taught. Um, we have a, a non-major drum set course um, for mm. anybody on campus. You don't even have to have played drums ever. Yeah, It's a real like drum set lab type course. I taught that oh, at some point.
0: I've gotten to do with that. That's that's fun, actually.
1: It that's, is fun, yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't you don't start with the Neil Pert, but I mean you get there. Right?
1: <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, right. That's the yeah. final project.
0: That's fine. Yes, exactly. It's why everyone just has to play YYZ, and
1: it's, it's right. Yeah, it's
0: pretty awesome. Was there anything related to marching band or no? Uh,
1: Not for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I of course would go, and I still go, um, show up at rehearsal from time to time, and just you know support support those students and support that ensemble as much as I can. And I love going in with the band to football games um, when when I can. And but no, someone else's assistantship duty was to do the drumline.
0: You know, you're mentioning that you eventually start teaching adjunct. Um, was the transition, did you doctorate and then, or were you still a doctoral student when that actually switched?
1: I did my defense that very first semester. I had finished all my coursework and finished my assistantship duties and that sort of thing. And just had, did my defense right at, right during that first semester. But other than that, it was a clean switch.
0: I think I remember this. Your, wasn't your dissertation on, uh, Raymond Hubble's marimba music.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so I kind of alluded to that earlier, that Diabolic Variation Experience really, really came back. Um, Yeah, I wrote my paper on his marimba music and um, its pedagogical uses uh, from the well-tempered marimbist up through Grand Fantasy and Toccata Fantasy and and comparing his music with... um, Romantic and classical piano music, and the uh, the similarities there, and how you can um, learn from one about the other, and and how that can in, um, influence your practicing and your interpretation, that kind of thing.
0: What's something that's you still that's still kind of really relevant about it?
1: Well, I think one thing is um, recognizing the importance of listening to non percussionists play um yeah. which i think we're probably not the only ones who get stuck listening to our own instrument all the time i, I would imagine yeah. that other instruments do the same thing um but just spending some time really listening to piano music and and reading writing about piano music and and studying those composers drove home this idea of 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 studying not just percussion music and whatever piece you're playing, maybe listening to that composer's other works. If there's mm-hmm. other works that are not for percussion, listen to those ones as well and see what you can get out of it. Talbot was a violinist, right? Um, Yeah, that sounds as right. As his primary instrument? I, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, he certainly was not exclusively writing for percussion, that's for oh, sure. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah.
0: You might have even told me about this, or I think I saw your presentation at NCPP when you were when you were doing this research. That you know, as hard as uh, the E flat minor toccata is, and it's very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I recorded it. You know, I'm. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, the prelude, some of those, some of the stuff in that is insane, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they have the. You know, at least you only have to do it once, and they're you know three minutes long or something instead right. of twelve. Yeah. But um, yeah, some things um, in those preludes that are sort of uh, known as, uh, if not the first time that some techniques were used, the first time maybe they were written down explicitly Mm. to be done. Uh, Things like kind of reverse sticking where mallet three is higher than mallet four um, Mm -hmm. or one-handed rolls explicitly written down. um, That kind of stuff that, that maybe was the first time um, that it was explicitly written down. But yeah, there's some really tough stuff. And the first few of them are 12-tone as well. And so just harmonically challenging.
0: Yeah. Aren't there some spots where he's got like like a, like a cross... Like he's got kind of cross-playing too going yeah, on? Yeah,
1: you definitely have to cross your hands a few times and kind of turn your hands backwards. And legend has it that um, Lee Stevens said, you know, I dare you to write me something I can't play. Um, essentially, maybe it was mm-hmm. worded differently, but that's sort of, um, yeah.
0: That sounds that's like something, bigger, yeah, something some least even than the 70s would have said.
1: <laughs> yeah. They were, they were both students from Eastman, and that's how they sort of got connected. And um, yeah, so yeah, some of those preludes are really quite, quite challenging. And even the well tempered Mirmist, which is um, uh, on the page, kind of looks like beginning and intermediate playing is not exactly. I mean, it's right. it's really piano, pia- influenced by piano playing in a way. And so you're asked to do some things um, that we can do on the instrument. And that's sort of what draws me to his writing and, and any writing that um, takes full advantage of what our instruments can do.
0: You know, from studying I both the Grand Fantasy and the Takata Fantasies, uh, so much is through, it's all through Composed. So you're basically, you're having to, de- you have like some ideas that certainly carry over, but the way to play them are just, you're like, I always say that if I ever decide to pull that piece up again, I I have to, I know that I have to basically just leave an hour a day of practicing just for that piece, just to get it kind of close again.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> for sure. That, that's how much stuff there is. <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's a bear. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of fantasy for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: So. yeah, That was where this concept that I, I, like, you know, I just would, I remember having just a list of, okay, measure, you know, 20 and 22, measure 40 and up to 46, measure 100 to 102, whatever it was. And no matter what I was doing that day, I had to hit those licks for 10 mm-hmm. or 15 minutes, um, yeah. uh, which actually became a really, I think, good way to practice. And I tell my students the same thing, like, you make yourself a list of everyday licks that no matter what you're doing, if you don't have time uh, or, or you're focusing on something else for the day, you have to, have to, have to do those quote unquote everyday licks. All
0: right, Andrea, finish out with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. Ready. All right. First question, an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts.
1: When students are really, really well told how to hold sticks or mallets, but very little attention paid to how to move those sticks or mallets. (laughs) When grip is great, when grip is really good, interval changes are not so good or stroke type is not so good. That's bothersome to me. Interesting. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe if students aren't taking private lessons uh, and they get a quick from a friend, Hey, this is how you hold the sticks. And then they're kind of just on their own to figure the rest out, maybe, or, uh, you know, just that kind of thing, probably. Mm. Or you can look at a picture and see how to hold really well, but then you're alone for the rest of everything and just yeah. kind of make up your own way to deal with the rest of it. Next
0: question uh, What are the ways that you've thought about or Um, dealt with any issues of inclusion and diversity and equity in your teaching playing?
1: I think mostly just trying to make sure that everybody feels like they can see themselves in the career, whether that's um, sharing music from different composers, um, sharing videos um, of performers, um, inviting, different guest artists, uh, that kind of thing. So that, um, anybody in our, our, uh, you know, the last thing I would want is for someone in the studio to feel like, um, they can't see themselves in the field as a professional.
0: All right. Other questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so,
1: how <laughs> when I was in high school, someone dressed up like me for Halloween. Ooh. Oh, and actually when I was, a uh, doctoral student, someone dressed up like me for Halloween. So what,
0: what, what does that mean?
1: Well, you know, just wearing a sweater over a collared shirt is kind of my go-to look. Uh, at <laughs> least, you know, now in high school, it was wearing a hoodie sweatshirt and, you know. So it, it wasn't exactly like I had a um, distinctive look. It was just that I had the same look. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, fair enough. Did you see you saw those perk people and were like,
1: hey, oh, you yeah, dressed yeah. up, but you look good today? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> All right, nice. What is the most imp- well, speaking of clothing, what's the most
1: impractical item of clothing you
0: own? Uh
1: probably the least worn item of clothing I have is like a white tuxedo jacket that I have for the occasional pops gig here and there.
0: <laughs> ah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that can work. It's weird how that has become – or that's like – that lets us know we're in a Pops gig sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) Or it's like summer festival. That part I kind of – I get a little bit more because it's obviously – yeah. Do you have a sports fandom?
1: I will – I like watching most sports when they're on TV or if I'm at a restaurant. I do sort of have that um, sports distraction – you know, if I'm at a restaurant and there's this TV with something on, whatever it is, it's really hard for me not to watch it. Yeah. Um, but I don't follow anything really closely. I'm not reading up articles the next day or checking stats or anything. I kind of like everything, but don't super follow anything that closely.
0: Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm a home
1: team person though. I'll tell you that, you know, I'm, Thunder fan and OU and oh sure and wherever I live the home team is is going to be the team that I root for.
0: Gotcha. Well, yeah, it's got to be fun. I mean, you've been you basically you almost arrived with the Thunder, right?
1: Yeah, I think they came in two thousand eight, maybe, and I yeah. came in two thousand ten. Um, so those first couple of years were really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, with um James Harden and Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant all on the same team. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting.
0: You got to a finals, and then they're like, "No, we don't need Harden." Then <laughs> yeah, you back.
1: yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> All right. What's a great movie, and what's a terrible movie?
1: I really enjoy the um, family of mockumentaries, like A Mighty Wind and Spinal Tap, mm-hmm. and Waiting for Guffman, and uh, Best in Show. Those I think are just phenomenal. Monty Python Life of Brian. Oh I mean, yeah, potentially one of the best um yeah. terrible movies, I don't know, those Hallmark movies that come on at Christmas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, is is your is your wife a fan of those?
1: They do end up being on a lot at uh, in the holidays at yeah. um family events. So, yeah. <laughs> that's that's fair.
0: I'm kinda of, I'm with you on those. My wife will put them on and I'm like, oh, here we go again, huh? <laughs>
1: you know, like, yeah, exactly.
0: The next crop. There, there's a new crop coming, I know. Do you have a favorite of the Christopher Guest? That's like it's Guest him and the great. kind of the rest. Do you have a favorite of, of one of those, all those that you mentioned?
1: Yeah, either Spinal Tap or Mighty Wind, those mm. are two are probably my favorite. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've, it's been a while since I've, I've seen both of those. I saw Guffman fairly recently, which I hadn't seen in a long time, and it was still it's still pretty solid. I know that like that's one where if you do like community theater, it's like it's got all the things, basically. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The more you do the thing they're talking about, I think the the funnier it is. But
0: yeah, they're all good and very like they're very they get the specificity of the Definitely. world. Yeah, yeah. It, my favorite thing about about Spinal Tap is that is is like you get the rockers who like who are like first of all, that's a documentary like that, that's not a like all that has actually happened yeah, and then you get the ones who are like, you know that movie is actually not funny anymore <laughs>
1: and I was actually once um circle making circles in the bottom of a concert venue, so it was like, oh yeah, this really happens <laughs> <laughs> Hello, (laughs) Cleveland.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's uh, so good. Um, What is a great
1: book? I am into nonfiction more than um, fiction. Right now I'm reading something called Humble Pie, the Hmm. subtitle of like P.I. The subtitle is When Math Goes Wrong in the Real World. And it's sort of funny stories about kind of silly mistakes people make. Um, not carrying the one and yeah, conversions yeah. and things like that. Um, those kind of things interest me lighthearted.
0: Gotcha. Did, have you read like Freakonomics or those, those kinds of? Yeah, books? I
1: did read those a while ago. Kind of that sort of vein are books that I'm really into.
0: Uh, kind of relatedly is there, if you were to meet someone, and this could be like on the, on the more obscure side and, and they say, I like, blank, whatever that is. And you'd immediately just be like, okay, we're good. Now that you you like (laughs) that. What what would that be for you?
1: I think science books and oddly really into uh, sort of social sciences and social studies. Mm. Um, Even though it's not really related to my career, I'm interested in reading that kind of stuff as far as books. Yeah.
0: Any specifics?
1: Uh, Adam Grant. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who wrote 4,000 Weeks? Are you familiar with 4,000 Weeks? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know,
0: but I, this, my wife has been reading that. I've met a uh, number yeah. of people who have been reading it recently.
1: I can't remember the name of the author. You can look it up uh, for the fact check. For, uh, but um, yeah, that's a good one. Oliver Berkman. There you go. Yeah.
0: Time management, time management for mortals.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've also recently been reading the uh, Walking Dead comics. Oh, how's that? Yeah. It's fun. I I watched the series first Mm -hmm. and then was just on a whim thought, I wonder what the comics are like. And um, so it's fun. They get much darker than the TV show.
0: Oh, sure, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Have you read other um, graphic novels or anything in that vein?
1: Not really. When I was in college, my roommate was really into it, and so I watched or um, read the – the Watchmen.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a great one.
1: Um, but it certainly was never something I was all that interested in.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to?
1: Trinidad. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to go down and just see the the Pan culture firsthand. Mm-hmm. That would be really exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think. Think. I'm. Think. I'm with you on that one. That would be hard to do when that that is always. That's a, that's a, um, it's when you get your, um, sabbatical. That's when, that's, that's when that happens. (laughs) Right. Cause it's always at the beginning of, of a year basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. When you go back, if you go back to the Virginia area where Mm -hmm. you grew up, is there somewhere that you have to eat? So you feel like you're home
1: again. There's a bagel shop, uh, Mr. J's bagels that will always go and get a bagel. Um, and I think that's kind of it. Um, when we moved to Oklahoma, we became vegan. And so oh. the the barbecue place that we used to go to, we're not going to go back there. Um, sure. But the bagel shop for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, that, that's cool. There are okay. some, you know, there are definitely hometown restaurants that like make me feel like, oh yeah, I remember all these memories at uh, Jess's quick lunch and the smoking pig and, um, but not really frequenting those places anymore.
0: Sure, sure, I understand. Yeah. How are you, a Brahms person?
1: Not really. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. It doesn't seem
0: like a vegan place.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've been there a couple of times when we first moved here, but I haven't been there in quite some time.
0: All right. Uh, last couple, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you?
1: Oh, I was playing at a church one time, uh, just in a church service, you know. Um, playing some percussion parts along with like an anthem. Um, Mm -hmm. And then since we were there, they said, oh, well, why don't you join on the processional? And why don't you join on this? And everything had a part written. It wasn't like they were expecting me to just improvise something. Whoever told us where to set up wasn't 100% aware of what the processional route was when the choir entered. Oh, So I'm playing some chimes on this kind of fanfare processional and whoever was first in line in the choir uh, is coming right at me and decides to just move the chimes as I'm playing them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so they can uh, process up into the choir loft. And I feel for them because they do the same thing every Sunday and nobody told them there'd be a set of chimes there. And um, that's, that's what they did. And it was fine. Um, it was just a, a a little bit of an awkward moment for a few seconds. <laughs> Did you, were you still playing? Did you, did you just oh, walk yeah. over and play? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't miss they a note. Yeah. They just moved them a couple of feet and I just walked with them and that was that.
0: Nice. Probably everyone probably thought that was part of the, part of the show that day.
1: Yeah. Right. It was the, um, it was the circus portion of the show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's great.
1: All right, Andrew, uh, last question. What one
0: piece of art could be movies, music, books, or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, anything, has impacted you the most recently?
1: A couple of weeks ago, the, the OU Wind Symphony played their first concert. Yeah, it's not necessarily that there was one given piece on the concert, but just um, the students really came together and put in a lot of hard work and just put on a really, really really good show and they were all excited about it. And it was just kind of a a good time and a good moment for those students. And, um, I think that was the most recent, like kind of, yeah, this is why we're here. This is why we're doing it. Um, and so I think that was a great way to start the year and I'm excited for, um, the other ensembles to do the same thing here in the next couple of weeks when they have their first concerts. Close with a piece by Omar Thomas, um, uh, called Carabana. um, Oh, that's, really do you know that one
0: i don't know i know come sunday okay and a, yeah, yeah. And a couple others of his but i don't know the, the carabana
1: yeah really exciting um kind of uh influenced by um music from the caribbean and omar i actually went to college with omar so that was kind of cool
0: oh sweet yeah 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 he's, he's uh he's, he's really good <laughs> Lot of fun having Andrew Richardson come on the show. I look forward to catching up with him on future events and to wish him well on his future endeavors at OU and all he does there. Thanks again, Andrew. This week's rave is thankfully live music. This time in the form of a concert by Grammy-winning artist Samara Joy. Fortunately, in the city of Columbia, Missouri, we have a very active and engaged jazz community in this place with just over 120,000 people. A lot of that is both through the school music here and the We Always Swing jazz series, which has been a staple in town for nearly 30 years. They get to bring in wonderful artists, including a concert I caught last week with the Chico Freeman sextet, which was great, and I just caught the concert with Samara Joy. If you get a chance to see her, you must do this. Samara Joy is a Grammy Award-winning jazz artist who won last year for both Best Jazz Vocal Album and Best New Artist at this past year's Grammys and has been touring in support of this album, Linger a While, ever since. She is performing with a really good septet featuring piano, bass, drums, trombone, trumpet, alto sax, and tenor sax. And that group was really tight and prepared and in great shape. But this was Samara show. couple of items to note. Even at age 23, which she is as of this taping, she has incredible stage presence. She tells great stories and seems to be completely herself, being totally engaging and relaxed. The transitions between the tunes were fun to hear her stories, and she really set the mood right. Two, the arrangements included lots of solos for all players, and they all were great. They were well-spaced and placed throughout, and she gave frequent credit to all, including those who were the primary arrangers and songwriters on some of these tunes. And three, she has some of the best vocal technique I've ever heard. There were times when I'd swear that she had opera training, as if she was singing romantic aria-style melismas that were infused with jazz stylings. It appears that maybe not opera training, but just jazz vocal training and music theater. But wow, was it all just super solid. She could hold notes super strong and super long and never did it appear that she ever put out much effort. And it was all even more impressive because it never felt like she was showing off. It all fit the music as it was arranged. If you have the chance and she's coming to your town, please go see her. You'll be very happy you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast, you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I will not catch you next week because there will not be a show, but I will be back in just under two weeks for my annual PASIC preview episodes. Hopefully you are registered and ready to go, and I look forward to putting those interviews out for you. Stay tuned, and until then...